Hey, everybody. Welcome to Commercial Construction Elevate the Industry podcast, hosted by yours truly, Dave Presida. Thanks for joining us today. The purpose of the podcast series is to help anyone and everyone who's in commercial construction, from the owner to the intern, to understand that there's many, many paths you can take in this business and hopefully how to get there quicker. We're fortunate today to have a good friend of mine, a longtime friend for over 25 years, who is a, a true leader in the industry, uh, Vic Cornelier, the chairman of the board of TSI Corporation. Vic, great to see you again. Always good to talk to you. How you Same doing? here, Dave. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Look forward to this podcast uh, as, it, as it develops. Thanks. The, uh, nice to be with you, for sure. Awesome. Before we get into how you got into the business, Vic, explain your business. For people who don't know you, what do you do? How do you do it? Well, we look at ourselves as being a management company, first of all. We just happen to be in the, I've always said, the glass and the glazing business per se. What does that mean? Well, today the industry is described as being building envelope professionals. We provide the exterior skin of a building, office building, institutional building, any kind of high rise, even residential multifamily that involve glass and metal and entrance packages and things of that nature. And we've been doing this now for some 40 years and uh, we're a household name in the Washington, D.C. area. But after many years of work, we well, we're well known amongst developers and, and uh, architects and also general contractors, of course. So, so we continue to do that. You're a family business? It's a family business. Uh, we now, this is our 42nd or 43rd year as of April. Uh, we continue to grow and develop, and we've passed on the business down to as in a succession plan that has been well thought out over many years. Uh, and now is in place. We're in the family. We've got three boys that are involved in the business in different perspectives, different angles, with Peter being our oldest son as president of the company, and Thomas, who's our youngest, is our CFO or COO combination. And we have David, who's involved with our field operations and our development and training of field people. He himself is a union eye worker running on 25 or 30 years or so. So we get it pretty well covered, and we're well, very fortunate. That's really good i want to congratulate you for the longevity and the fact that you can deal with pete for so long he'll be here soon i, I met vic i think in 1995 when i came down here to do business and i'll say this to you all who are listening is that uh you can tell a lot of, about people by the way they treat those who they basically control so when when you have a contractor and we were a subcontractor but they treat you with respect it, it says a lot. That says that probably says a lot about why you've been you know, in business for so there's, long. There's one noun, okay, that I've always used, and the noun is relationships. It relates to people both in your business, your vendors, and your client customers. But in all of those instances, the number one responsibility you have is to the people that are working with you. Now, notice I said with me and not for us. Right. It's never that way. And, uh, and so we've been very fair with people throughout. We're going to continue to be that way. And Pete and his succession are treating people exactly the same way. We want responsibility. We want accountability. We want performance. And that allows the entity itself to be effective in the marketplace. And how do you get more work? Is performance and being successful in the projects that you've got. And what you just said applies to any business. That's what well, so I said in the, at, at the outset. We're a management company. We happen to be in the glass and glazing business. Right. So how did you... How did you get in this business? 
How did I get in that business? I often wonder that myself. But, uh, <laughs> Why did you get in that? Upon graduation from college back in 1964, I went to work for PPG, Pittsburgh Plate Glass. And quite frankly, I got into their commercial construction division and ended up in working in the greatest workplace in the world is New York City. All the good and all the bad and all the struggle and I all the strain. And, and it's a very difficult place to survive, especially if you're an outsider. And being from Boston, I was an outsider. But, you know, overcame all of that. And I developed strong relationships with general contractors, but more importantly, with owners. And that led to my own personal reputation. And so I carried that. And I left PPG and went to work for a company in San Francisco, Sule Steel Company. And I ran their San Diego office. I, they, I worked with them in New York a little bit after I left PPG. And they were a big time curtain wall manufacturer, design engineering. Had a well-established position in, in the West Coast. And they were operating across into the Houston area from all the way from San Diego and building up that area. And I was a part of that operation of going from San Diego into Phoenix into, uh, into, uh, into Dallas and then on into Houston and over to New Orleans too, you know, a little bit over there. So anyway, that's how I got into it. And it just, it just kept going. But you know what? I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I'd looked at buying lumber yards. I looked at <laughs> building, starting grocery stores. My wife and I had talked about it. And she was 100% behind me in no matter whatever we ever did in terms of development, as well as raising a family. So that came, and an opportunity came in 1977. And I, we jumped into it, a great sacrifice for a family. Having our third child born two weeks prior, living on a farm, taking care of a farm. Pete can relate to all of those sort of things, as can the other boys. And, uh, and that's, that's how it is. So we've been in this business, our reputation, my reputation, came first, but I wanted my reputation to spread to the company reputation. So it's part of the, the brand, as we would say now, or the culture, maybe is a better word for us. But when did you start your first business? When In the business itself? Yeah. When did you get into business? Like starting your own company? Oh, starting the own. Well, it happened in 1977. And it, it and they have, you know, it, it was, I built good relationships with our clientele as PPG's clientele. Yes, working for PPG at the time and being a project manager, I was a senior project manager, but I always wanted to make myself known to their customers and their vendors. And I did that. And so I developed a name and reputation for myself. When the time came to launch our company, TSI, my, the door was open to walk into major general contracting companies. I had, I had the Charles Tompkins company, I had the then George Hyman, now Clark Construction, in particular, I had James G. Davis. I had Jim Davis himself, the founder, or the, well, the second, right? Jim, Jim now is the president of the company, but his dad was president, and his dad was president back in the day. So I caught the second Jim Davis, and every one of them knew me because I had personal experiences with them working on their projects, but with PPG. And I came to them, and I, I researched it with them. If I did something on my own, they said, we'll stand behind you and give you every chance you get, and we'll give you all that you want to do and you know, interesting thing is with Hyman, they let me bid work as TSI back in the day. And then they would share the bidding pricing that we had with the marketplace. There was no intention other than the fact to give me the opportunity to see where we would fit if we knew what we were doing from a pricing standpoint. That led to small commitments, small projects, and then they just grew. And like anything else, you're only as good in this industry as your last project that you finished. You mentioned the R word, relationships. So you had... You had people that could influence business. That they wanted to. They wanted to help you. Completely. But but you 
obviously provided some kind of value. They saw value in you. Value comes from performance. Right. And you stand by your word. We didn't need a 200-page contract to tell us what it is we had to do. Back in the day, you operated on a handshake, yeah. for sure. I can really remember we had a building with, with Hyman called Capital Place, downtown Washington, D.C. We never signed a contract throughout the entire process. But to get our final payment, the accounting department required a signed contract. That's so and so I rushed up there to sign the contract. We were long gone, long done. That's but amazing. that never happens anymore today. No, it's a different it's a different world. It's not bad, but it's it's different. Yeah. Right? It's it's certainly yeah. changed. When did you start making your mark in this market? I'd say we almost immediately in the by seventy seven when this thing was born, gave birth to, it started emerging. I said by nineteen eighty we were pretty well established as a as a, as a on everybody's bid list, it spread beyond the normal two or three contractors we were working with. So you were off and running, but who was we? Who, you and who else? Well, at the time, it was myself and a, and a fellow named Alvin Harris. He was a manufacturer's rep who I put the company together with back in that time. And so he had the vendor side covered. And we took over a labor company that had the labor piece. And I had the marketing business development. And that was the same way all the way through. I've always been the voice, face, name of the company. Up to the point of me now transferring that over very successfully to Peter. And he's doing exactly the same thing. So the 80s were good. Mm -hmm. 80s were great. Right. How about the 90s? Yep. Yep. 90s, the 90s. 90s were, were a little bit difficult. The 90s, we had a we had a transition, which was a a, a business failure on our own, right? We had, we had shot ourselves in the foot and tried to grow and develop in an area where we were becoming a marketing distribution company for residential window systems, separate and apart from our commercial construction work. And that basically was a was a decision that was, it took a lot of capital, took a lot of inventory, and it took a lot of time. Attention. And a lot of dissolution of our core business. And so consequently, the core business suffered. The recession came, and it, it basically took, we had to shut the, lay that company down in order to survive. And we did lay it down. And we came down to the point where we only had two or three people from about 20 people working in the organization, but never did we ever lose market share. And that's an important piece, because that comes right back to the relationships that I was talking about earlier. And relationships are something that are your bread and butter. What about your, your key people? And before you answer that, you know, I have personal experience, and, and some good, some not so good with that. When I had to make some changes, and people who I thought were really close to me and had my best interests at heart along with theirs, wasn't the case because as, as soon as the money stopped, they were gone, right? Now, not everybody, but some. What was your experience when that happened? We had some of that, and uh, but not a lot of it. We had people that were that came along in, in the in the management side of the business that didn't prove their worth or their value and whatnot. I was very careless with ownership, and I made the mistake of identifying an individual that had all the engineering background. I surrounded myself with people who had the strengths that I didn't have. Which is smart. Okay, so it's just a balancing managing act of, of that. I mean, and I like to showcase those people because it showed the depth and strength of the company in every situation. And that happened. And the person I brought on and brought up from the, uh, the bowels of, uh, of uh, Mississippi and uh, bought him his first suit and shirt and tie at the time, uh, it was college educated, nevertheless. He was an engineer by background. I actually had an architectural background. 
And so he came on board as a key player, and I offered him eventually a 50% interest in the company. Big, big, big mistake. That's a case where you're talking through your heart and not through your head. That's because big. emotion takes over, had no place, okay? Oftentimes, my heart's gotten in the way of my head, dealing with people. But that's a shortcoming. But that one cost me a lot of money over a period of time. And that, in, that relationship uh, ceased 10 years ago, and there was a buyout that went over a 10-year period. And it was what, I was the best fan of this gentleman's wedding, for example. That's how close we were. But money, in a lot of ways, poisons people. It, it, they, they show their true colors when it, when it gets down to what's mine is mine and what's yours. Well, I want that to be mine, too. And that happens. And that happened in that case. And, and it's unfortunate because we were doing extremely well. But that's the way it is. It is what it is. You spoke with your heart. But for everybody who's listening, take that seriously. Because if you're thinking about starting a business in particular, that's a big decision you're going to have to make. Are you going to bring on a partner? If so, how much? You know, are there other ways to do it? And that's for another day, but I'm glad you brought that up. That's a, that's a big other, deal. The other thing, as you mentioned about starting a business or whatnot, and it's, it's, it's really understanding how a business functions. How the business functions in a certain industry. In our industry, working capital is a huge requirement. Love, love. Okay? You've got to manage your cash flow. And I'll give you a funny little example. When we, re when we came out of the ashes in 1990, we generated all of the maximum of $400,000. And we had, we had myself and two others as partners at the time. And then we had non-participating partners outside the company that are in our industry that participated in our ownership. So you raised $400,000. The young man partner we had in myself, Gary, and this other fellow, well, he had control of the books. He had control of accounts payable and accounts receivable. So his innocence, he spent $400,000 in one month paying all of our bills. We had no working capital at the end of 30 so days. It was innocence, not ignorance? It both. <laughs> I preferred to yeah, the heart. Honestly, it he, was innocence. He, he didn't mean it. Yeah. it. He also didn't last. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so he was gone after a period of time. But nevertheless, working capital is your blood, your the blood of your whole organization. It's, it is your total function. You can't As live without it. I know very well. And people need to understand that. So that means your billing processes have to be accurate and efficient. It means your collection issues have to be, you have to be very good at your collections. And what it means is that your project management people online, they've got to be little businessmen themselves. They've got to understand not just the technical part of what we do as a as, a, as an industry, but they have to understand how we function as a business. And when they can put those two things together, we hit a home run. When they don't put those two things together, then we're going backwards. And it's hard to find good people who well, can understand that. Cost control is a big deal. And it's not just your fixed overhead, right? It's, it's your job cost, managing that. And in our business, you get what, what's the percentage of change orders? You know, if you do a $20 million job, what do you think the percentage of change orders? Well, you'd like it to be less than 1%. Yeah. You don't want change orders. All, all the change orders do depend upon when they when they arrive. But if you've got an end date when your project is supposed to be completed, <laughs> Doesn't and change. then you get change orders issued, that pushes that end date further down. Or it makes you do this with your manpower, right? Well, it, it, it's, 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 it has a lot of negative impact. But what it does, the biggest impact it has, it extends you collecting your retention. Not good. Right. 
typically 10%. And that's 10%. Right. And so the value of the job. So it puts, makes it more difficult to collect and close. So one of the things that makes your business, the glass curtain wall, the glass and glazing business different than, let's say, the drywall business, is that your material to labor ratio is different. Much the cost of material is way more than cost of labor. It's usually a, Which is good. Yeah, it is good. I mean, it's a, if you get, it's about a 75, 25 <clears throat> split on labor, on material to labor. And we, the biggest risk we end up having is the control of the labor. That means all the events that take place that make your labor easy or challenging or difficult. It's not just the manpower you put up, but it's all the challenges they face and the preceding work being done correctly ahead of you. Right. And not, on time. You're not in control or anything. You don't have Picture any this. You're 75, 25. Picture a big drywall contractor who's, who's 65 labor, mm -hmm. 35 material, and that material that's a million parts and pieces. Mm -hmm. It's it's a different it's a different Completely. animal. Our, our industry, though, in the glass and glazing business, from owners and from architects, is the most misunderstood business in terms of how a product is developed. They have no idea how technical. So what do they do? They hire consultants. And the consultants are people that typically come along and they propagate themselves. They're only there to extend and their own benefit. And they're going to create a crisis, but they'll have a solution. And the owner doesn't know otherwise. But they put all their faith in a consultant. And we know that the consultants don't always know what they're talking about. I don't think I can name all the companies that went out of business. The Curtinwall business seems to, to have a lot, of, a lot of fallout, a lot of failure. Why is that? It's so easy to get into it. It's so easy to, to uh, have access at a lower level, smaller projects and that sort of thing. Vendors will extend credit to people that aren't necessarily qualified financially. And the people that are getting the credit end up taking on more and more work and they end up taking on bigger, big, bigger piece of work. All of a sudden, they're out of control. They're not paying their bills. They're not getting the work done on time. They don't know how to price the work. Again, a good management company in the industry that we're in, we had to learn how to do all of those things and do them right. And, uh, and so easy access. And so there have been many failures. And companies have taken off and bitten more than they can handle. And I gave a speech to the, uh, the Glass Association of North America called Ghana. I did this a few years ago. And there were many people, six or 700 people in attendance. And on my first screen, my first slide, <clears throat> the list of company names that I knew from 1970s, right up to the present day in 2012 when I did this or so. And so people started saying, well, who are these people? I said, see these names up in here? You don't want to be one of these. And this is what happened to these people. And there were enough older people with gray hair in oh, the audience with a few consultants who were around, including Gordon Smith. Gordon Smith? Looked up here and they said they kept nodding and nodding and nodding. And they, they, became, they lost control of their own destiny and bit off more than they could So say. I think the word might be intoxicating because the, the revenue you can generate in this high $100 plus a square foot business, it's so easy to get to, to 15, then to 30, mm -hmm. then to 50. And like you said, you know, if you're leveraged and something goes wrong, if everything is okay and you're leveraged, it's okay. But when one thing goes wrong, it can all come tumbling down. Well, it can. I'm going back to what I, the key word, relationships. You can, when you go into a new market, you have to prove your worth. How do you do that? Low price, high risk, low return. You're, you're competing against companies that are already in the community. So companies that have failed over the, in, over the years, 
came into new community areas, competing against locals, happened in New York, it's going on to this day, that people came into this market in Washington, D.C., and they left with their tail between their legs because they're competing with us and others, others that are local. So speaking of local, why is the Washington, D.C. market a good market to be in? Well, you know, it's funny. For the locals, it's always been a good, profitable uh, place to be. But the locals have a certain ceiling of capacity. As the projects have become larger, the glass and glazing business, the projects that we did downtown Washington on any given address in the day, in the 80s and the early 90s or whatnot, we were in the $5 million, $6 million. When glass became a product of choice and an energy efficient, efficient product itself, architects went crazy with it. And so all of a sudden, that's still, the romance is still going on. So the $5 million job in the 80s is now a $15, $20 million job in this, in the, in the, in this century, in this 2000s. So what's TSI's threshold today, would you say? I think the threshold is defined in different ways. It's not so much building size, it's a lot of things. Who's the developer? Mm -hmm. Who's the architect? Who's the general contractor? matching up a vendor with that challenge, along with our own skills and looking at our own strengths and weaknesses and availability of talent to meet the schedule, which is the number one driving component of any project is the schedule, yep. that we can fit it into our backlog. So that, meet, that's a lot, it, of it's a lot of time. It's a lot of analyzing based upon availability of, of management people, availability of field people, to fit the schedule time on that particular project. And hoping the schedule holds. Well, they often don't, and they slip. Right. But we, at least we know what we know with work we have going on, right? And so you try to fit it in. But you just don't, someone pick up the phone and, and you quote something and all of a sudden you take the, take the job. You can't do that. You have to analyze all the things I just mentioned. Right. So there is no, there, we've, our total value of work, we've been as low as one or two million up to 40, 42 million aggregate total of a project. That was city center downtown Washington. I think our, we're really comfortable in that 10 to $15 million range. Is it a seller's market now? Is it what? A seller's market it's, today? Work has been chasing this industry, the people in it, has been chasing them for the last eight or nine, 10 years. It's changing a little bit. Uh, COVID has had some impact on that because decision makers, things are being slowed down and whatnot. So there's some impact of that. So it's, it's becoming a little more competitive but it's competitive on what we call the design assist phase. We don't hard bid dollar work anymore. We price it out and we get in, we're working on documents that are less than complete. They're really design development and even that's not complete. And they hire you to bring you in to finish that phase. And you're competing quickly. against, quickly, and you're competing against like companies that are asked to do the same thing. So there is a competitiveness at that point, but it's you interpreting, they're interpreting the documents that you Again, bringing the best resources you have and people and vendors to that particular challenge and see how it works out. Again, opportunity comes from relationships. Relationships are based on performance. So they're going to call you in because they trust you. They trust and you. And they know that you're good. Now, design assist, design build, uh, IPD, all that started on the West Coast. And it took a while before it got out here. But I see it now because mm -hmm. I'm involved in, in some, some skin you know, activities uh, in terms of cold form metal framing, and it's the same thing. It's going, it's going toward design assist. And if you're smart, if you're smart, that's where you want to be, because you're. In well, we've been in the, the, the term itself is 
it gets overplayed a little bit, uh, and, we've, and we've always remembered, we have to remind our clients that it's design assist. It's not designed. Big time. We're not taking on that responsibility. Right. Our bonding people don't want us taking on that responsibility. We don't want to take on it, but we're going to help you get to your objective. And you've got to explain to us what that objective is. And your goal is to get the job. It's and to I get the job, it's to also satisfy their budget. I mean, there's certain qualifying questions we ask in the beginning to find out if the project is real. Yeah, you're and not going to work on a job with the budget is stupid. It's just a waste of time no. for you and anybody else. No, no not, not a bit. Guten Tag. Anyway, you'll get that in a minute. I've been in the air barrier business for 20 plus years uh, from when it was a single asphaltic peel and stick impermeable membrane to what it is today. It's a big part of, of the building science. The business has changed. There are several manufacturers in it, but I choose today to deal with Dorkin, a German-based company. Not only are they competitively priced, their technical support is great, and mainly, I can always count them, they're there when I need them, in the field or during the bid. The biggest single differentiator between Dorkin and other manufacturers is they have a simple system. An example, on a previous job, uh, we have five different products to do the same thing that Dorkin gives me with two products. So Dorkin, I thank you for that. My uh, workers thank you, my clients thank you. I would urge you to check Dorkin out at their website, dorken.com. That's dorken.com. So bring me into when you really got the family involved. Family got involved, well, the oldest one in the family, Peter, has always been involved, again, because of earlier discussions, even when he was going through college and whatnot, and even after that, when he was working uh, outside of this company and working at 9X and up in New England and other places, always talked about this business. We always talked about the status of TSI. We always talked about the people that are in it. We always talked about strategic planning. We always talked about new projects. We always talked about successes Even though he wasn't in the business. He wasn't in it. Right. Because it ended up being, we ended up being a good sounding board. And it was just something, you know, that was, I cherished it, being his dad and being able to have a discussion like that on a business relationship that he wasn't involved with. But he had a lot of input. He had a lot of suggestions. He had a lot of things we talked about. He had a lot of things compared to what we were doing versus to the company he was working for, what they were doing. And so it was kind of a give and take sort of a deal. When it came opportune for him to come to the company, it was never a plan. There was never a plan. The three boys in the business never planned to have them here from day one. It came to that. It came to that. And the time he came, he already had a history. He already knew. He already knew the basic rudimentary fundamental business of what we do. And so it was easy for him to grab on and get a hold of it. And so he began, even in the beginning, began developing and creating his own name for himself, creating his own reputation within the organization to the clientele outside. Well, I can remember when I met Pete, and we're going to talk to him in a second. Uh, I knew two things, that he was new to the business, but he wasn't new to the business. So exactly. you just confirmed that. Yeah. And uh, made a difference. Yeah. It made a difference. I tell people, and it's not quite true, but I tell people that it, when, of the boys in the business when asked, I told them I paid for their high school, I paid for their college education, I wasn't going to pay for anything else. And I also didn't want to see you in the business for at least 10 years. Get somebody else to go teach you something. Quite different. That's interesting. 
he was out for a good, what, 15 years or so before he got into this. And, and uh, I know David is an iron worker. He was out for seven or eight, maybe 10 years before he came in to help us and work with us. And then Thomas, he broke the skin. You know, he, he came in about five or six years after he was done with what he was already doing. On the quicker path, but that's unusual. Yeah. Yeah. Usually you'll get, you'll, you'll get your children working in the field, you know, high school, college. He did that. Him as an they intern, all did. And then, you know, yeah. They all work summers. He, he frightened his mother when he got his driver's license at age 16 and he comes to work and put him behind the, the, behind the wheel of a, of a, of a uh, big flatbed truck driving it in downtown D.C. Yeah. Yeah, and you're in the stripes. So we're gonna we're gonna meet Pete. So Pete Cornelia, president of TSI, welcome. Thanks for thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we just talked with your father for a few minutes, and he, he mentioned some good things about you. <laughs> Tell us when you entered the business, Pete. So I started in uh, I started in 2000. I, uh, I had an opportunity that uh, had gone really well. Uh, the company I was with before started at 700,000. Uh, when I finished, it was a $64 million company, eight offices, three international, five in the U.S. and whatnot. Uh, difference uh, ultimately between myself uh, and the owner of the business, uh, we had grown the business together. Uh, I elected to be bought out. He was an entrepreneur. You and I had a conversation a little bit earlier today. Uh, when entrepreneurs don't have a lot to risk, they're they're good and they they make quick decisions and they roll. Once they've got something to lose, though, it changes. Uh, and I learned this about entrepreneurs afterwards. And it kind of changed the future of that company. Instead of staying on rocket ship growth, it uh, uh, it was they were going to try to stagnate it in an industry that was growing 17 percent distribution business, and it, it wasn't going to work. And I knew that. Unfortunately, that company is no longer around today. So I think ultimately I made the right decision. So about the same time, uh, Vic and his partner, Gary, at the time, were talking about succession and whatnot. I was 35, had a master's degree and some pretty good experience. Not a lot of construction experience other than being in the family and, and what I knew. But um, made sense to uh, come down, look at the opportunity. We were able, fortunate enough to put something together and been in uh, construction ever since. So I'm going to challenge you. Sure. In a few words, describe, because your father just described your business. Mm -hmm. How would you describe your business today? Who are, who is TSI? Uh, I mean, he did a pretty good job because there's a transition in there. Uh, TSI in the early days was very much Vic Cornelia. Um, his presence, his uh, capability, his relationship building. Uh, and then I think the ownership and pride, the way that he worked, spoke about the company and whatnot. He was kind of a, a one-man marketing machine, if you will. And I think back then in construction, it was probably a little bit easier to do that. Um, so the challenge for me is, is is taking those positives and the foundation that he's uh, built and find a way to kind of make that work today. Uh, today, construction's different. Obviously, we tell you, Vic, I heard telling you about a handshake and a deal. That doesn't happen any longer. Uh, financing companies have a lot more to do with projects than they used to. Developers don't have lead times, don't have time to get ready. Architects don't get as much time to draw it. One of the reasons design assist, which you guys talked about, exists. Uh, also, contractors get tighter schedules. So, so being a construction uh, specialist, uh, uh, which is what we're trying to uh, to make happen with our folks, you got to do a good job today of communicating, keep yourself ahead of trouble, 
knowing that you're getting yourself into a fairly difficult task, one which we're capable of doing, but, uh, but if we don't manage it properly, we can become part of the problem, not part of the solution. And that's what we have to do. We have to do a better job today being out in front of those projects. So, so you've been here for what, 15 now? How long? Uh, 12, 2000, so oh, 20 2000, okay. uh, coming up on the 21st. So I met you a long, and I remember, I, I told you father, I said I met you and I knew, I knew that you were new to the business, but you kind of weren't, you had your quick study. You and I have done a lot of business together. We've yeah. shared a lot of strategic discussions but speaking of strategic discussions, right, what what's changed in your business in the last thing, either, either one of you guys, in the last five years? Major changes, anything structurally or otherwise? I think the things that I just talked about for me, I'll let uh, Vic throw his in, was, was kind of what I just talked about. It's, uh, it, it is still very much a relationship business. And, and again, when you and I talked earlier, I see my job as a president. I was handed the... The reins of, of a going concern. Uh, uh, TSI had an unbelievable uh, reputation in the market. It accomplished a ton of things. It had, had done some great things. But but we were what worked in the past didn't wasn't going to work as well in the future. So what I needed to do was take the positive things that made sense in the past and then try to put the new things together in it. We've also tried to get younger, as everybody has. You know, we had a. Uh, a much older workforce about 10 or 15 years ago consciously went in. We have a lot of professionals under the age of 40 today, which is good, but you lose some of that experience. So it yeah. becomes a challenge. So, so making balance between then and now, are, you know, those are two of the, the things that I was so, I've, I've seen, we've, we've all seen this, right? Mm -hmm. the, the downturns mm -hmm. in the market. And it seems like during a downturn, you might have less work, but your better people are doing it. Uh, and while the work is less and maybe take it for a little bit less, I found it over those years, sometimes you make a little bit more money because it's being managed better. You know, now I think there's so many, there's so much work out there that people are getting forced into positions that they're not ready for. Sure. And it, and it, it hurts all of us, I think. That's the biggest change I've seen is the qualifications of people. But today, a, a construction executive today would, uh, would not would not have been a construction executive 10 years ago. The younger, less experienced, and, and people below them are even in the same category. They, they wouldn't necessarily the be project managers today, or yes, a year, they are today. And so the qualifications of these people makes it very challenging. And it puts more of a demand on us to make sure that the general contractors do their job so that we can do our job. Right. And we have to make sure that our people, younger people as well, understand what they need to do to do their job. And that's a challenge. So I think overall in the industry, and I've had discussions with key executives in a few companies and a couple of developers, is that it's very difficult finding good qualified people. And a lot of it has to do with artificial intelligence and understanding and how it affects the day-to-day -day operations in construction processes. But in any event, the, that's the change I've seen is the qualification of the people that we've had to deal with is that so many green people that don't know construction are in positions where they should know construction and they don't. And I think that hurts. And I think developers are getting frustrated with general contractors for the same reason. So you talk about schedule, and I know you guys used to build everything piece by piece, right? You used to stick build everything. Oh yeah. Do you stick build anymore? Uh, you kind of have to down on the ground floor. 
uh, a lot of retail spaces sit sure. under overhangs or uh, you know they're, they're kind of broken up different from the rest of the building. Usually from the second floor up, we're either installing a unitized curtain wall or we're installing a uh, assemble and glaze window system. So a unitized curtain wall is nothing more than a, a prefabricated unit, correct? Right. Yep. And prefabrication is a big is a big deal, and it's going to get bigger. No question. And and you and I saw it in the curtain wall business in New York City back in 1988 when Glassaloon made units from Florida, shipped them up to New York, installed them. You know, there were a lot of windows broken, a lot of odds that because of the unions were losing some of the stick built work, but it changed things. Mm -hmm. So who are your who are your uh, reliable manufacturers, suppliers? Who do you use? So uh, um, and not in any particular order, Erie Architectural in uh, Windsor, Ontario. Uh, is, a, is a big vendor, has been really good uh, for us over a number of years. Uh, GMS, Gardner Metal Systems down in Atlanta, uh, Baker Metal Products down in uh, uh, Dallas, Texas, uh, MK Architecturals in Akron, I think, Ohio, uh, in that uh, area. Good anyway. good yeah, good, uh, good folks. But uh, the, the neat thing there, Dave, is a lot of those are family businesses. They can relate to us, we can relate to them. They take a boatload of pride in what they do. You know, you're one phone call away from an owner getting on a plane and coming to a job site to kind of uh, you know, deal with an issue and whatnot. So that type of thing's hard to find. And again, when you're committing to schedules and everything else, you need somebody's got your back. And so speaking of family through. business, <laughs> tell me what you know about family business in general, because you mentioned something earlier today that, that really hit home about the success rate or the failure. Well, yeah, I mean, I, it didn't, I was aware of it, and I, I, I read statistically where family businesses have a failure rate of over ninety-four percent in the second generation. Mm. And and that and that factor. That's you. Yeah, I know. Well, yeah, well, <laughs> I just that just hit home. It, it's a big number. It's a it's a number, and I've seen many cases where where second generations have failed for that reason, and they lose the purpose of corporate. Purpose, corporate function, corporate use, corporate future, everything, because they end up what's in it for me. And they grow up. It's funny if they if the family had it, and they you know, if the family grew up as the business is evolving, poor, right? And they knew, and we had he'll he'll tell you what we were living like in the in the first ten or fifteen years of this company, the sacrifices the whole family has to make. Well, if that family had to make those sacrifices and that family member members get into the business itself, eventually, they remember the sacrifices. I appreciate it. And they appreciate it. Now, a lot of family businesses get into that second generation and the family, they didn't grow up with any sacrifice because everything was running really well. And so that second generation gets their hands on it and gets control of it. They don't have the same idea in mind about succession and future. It's almost like they didn't build up the scar tissue because they, they didn't don't have, to have any scar tissue. Right. And there's an awful lot of generations out there today that are exactly that same way. When I talk to a person or a group of people that want to start a business, the biggest question is why. You know, and and oftentimes family businesses, second generations, don't ever ask themselves that question. It's just there. Yeah. You know, and I always say that you know you can't fault somebody for being in a family of a, of a, of a businessman or a businesswoman, an owner. It's not their fault. Sure. And if you if you inherit the business, it's not your fault either. I say you're measured by what you do with it after you, you have sure. influence. Yeah, right. yeah. So so tell me what, what you're doing 
you, you mentioned a little bit before about sure. taking the cultural pieces and trying to move what makes sense forward. You know, how would you identify those in the market? Yeah, uh, from a family business yeah. perspective, mm-hmm. sure. Uh, I mean, like I said, the, the challenge is, 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 is I can't, I, I didn't, I'm the second president TSI's ever had. And uh, I told the company when we made the transfer in front of everybody that I take that role very seriously. I'm appreciative. And you know, the fact that there's companies, uh, however old, 43, 44 years old, and this is the second president, it's a pretty good sign. So, um, so I think part of it, part of it is respect the position, respect the, um, the past, uh, have some humility. I think you got to be a little bit humble too. Uh, you know, I, I have to earn the respect of our vendors. I have to earn the respect of our uh, workers. I have to earn the respect of our clients and, and customers and the owners and whatnot. Um, so that's how I, I try to approach it. I do think Vic, to his credit, instilled that in us. Uh, and I, I worked that way from when I was at 9X, which I clearly wasn't the owner of, but, uh, but got a lot of great training. But I showed up early every day. I volunteered for whatever they needed and kind of had that, that work ethic right from the start. Uh, David obviously has as well uh, with his hands working as an iron worker uh, and uh, has done it. And Thomas brings his skills. Uh, Thomas Buck got a, a master's degree. Uh, he's got a finance background and he's learning construction and, uh, and does it as well. So I think the key is respecting the business and all three of us do that. I think what we haven't done as well as a company and we've made some changes here recently to kind of deal with that, trying to adapt who we are to a, a profitable, sustainable model. Uh, I think in the past probably five or six years, we've tried to be too many things to too many people. We've kind of narrowed that down a little bit, simplified the business a little bit, a little bit closer to maybe the older model in terms of what we were, but doing it in a way that makes you successful today. And that's, I think, so what, what are you we're doing? Do. What are you not doing today that you were doing three years ago? Uh, we're going to get out of a lot of the manufacturing end of it. We had a, a pretty large metal panel business fairly large ornamental uh, iron business. Uh, We found out simply put, being a subcontractor is a very different business than being a manufacturer. A good friend of ours in the business who is in the manufacturing end, liking it to the difference between the dog wagging the tail and the tail wagging the dog. In manufacturing, you have a, a, a certain, you have to keep a consistent flow of production in there. Subcontracting, you're a, a speedboat in the ocean. You're reacting to whatever the market gives you, whatever the contractors need, schedules start, schedules stop, delays, everything else. You've got to find a way to be able to deal with that. And and we were struggling trying to do both. So we've gotten rid of the manufacturing side of our business. We've kept enough capability for glazing support is kind of more what we call it. But we're going to get back into being subcontractors and trying to be the very best ones we can and hopefully the best ones in the well, market. When you're in a design assist role too, that experience is going to be worth something. Oh, without a doubt. You, you understand where you are in the business. Elevate, 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 elevate. Mark Twain once said, and I'm serious, it's the clothes that make the man. Naked people have little or no influence on society. The wardrobe was provided by Benchmark Clothiers, custom clothes to fit your lifestyle. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram at Benchmark Clothiers. And when you go there, tell them Dave sent you. Hi to you, Vic. Are you, how do you feel about the business today? Are you happy where the business is today? Oh, I'm very happy with where the business is. I think we've accomplished what so many second generations fail at doing, and that's the handoff. And I think we've gotten there. Um, I, am I happy with the business as it's doing? Yeah, very much so. 
Am I happy where I am particularly? Well, some days yes, some days no, because do I miss the critical parts and the romance of this business? Yeah, I do. And I miss the personal kind of content. Isn't it? And I just, now I just, I'll grab my, my hard hat and my goggles and I'll go visit a job site, just be, only a good one. <laughs> and I don't want to go to the bad ones. I want to right. go to the good ones. And make, you feel good. There's a sense of pride and, and whatnot. And it's, a, it, it's always been an experience that you've got to support the men in the field. You have got to support the men in the field. If they're out there by yourself, you've got an awful lot of invested in them. So liking it to a baseball nine-inning ball game, you, you know, the first the first three innings is that is that design assist phase and lining up your vendors. Dying the room. middle three innings is just all the fabrication, manufacturing, and delivery. And that last phase, and the most critical one, is the installation phase. Right. And if they don't do it, everything goes downhill. That's right. You lose. So you've got to be out there. You've got to support these people. I'm a little concerned that we're not doing enough of that. That's my And person. that may be generational. Speaking of which... You're younger than him, and you have a younger brother, younger than you. It's almost like yeah, that's three generations. Yeah, absolutely. We're Very unique true. in that sense. Yep. So Thomas is the CEO, CFO, president, yep. chairman. Yep. Uh, so the, the succession plan is working. Mm -hmm. What is the biggest difference between Peter and Thomas? <laughs> besides <laughs> age? Besides age. I, I, think, I think a lot of it I mentioned about artificial intelligence. I think the, from that standpoint, Pete's better than I am on, on computer skills and, and access and that's utilization. And Thomas is even better than he is, light faster and organizationally on computer and to sit. And I don't know who taught these people how to type, uh, I, but they can sit here and talk to you. And then they're doing this. Yeah. And when they're not doing that, they're doing this because right. it's on their watch, whatever. But back to this again. And so their mind is split and you don't know which Piece of that mind you got. Yeah. <laughs> Give me this. I want to see both. But they're doing this. Their fingers That's are funny. tapping and they're going on the keyboard and there's a million and they type, I don't know, 60, 70, 80 words a minute. So and it's all of them. That's the biggest difference in the age group. For business, you know, we have to be current. That, and that, and you know, you and I talked about it earlier and I have a son in the business. Relationships, relationships, relationships. You know, if you can call, don't call them. If you can see them, even better. Sure. Send an email. But there's so much you can do with social media, right? Oh, uh, that will yeah. help your brand. No, uh, and, and that's and I think we're, we can all say the same thing. But uh, so so there's a difference between the three, which is great. I got to ask you this: If you all get together for Thanksgiving dinner, what does that look like? <laughs> You know, uh, credit to my mom, she only put up with business talk for so long. And then she makes sure that we, the business side ends and we get back to being relationships and I think talking we, about our kids and yeah, all of that. I, I, I think even I think when, we're cognizant of it. when we as parents, you know, spend time with them and their families and whatnot, business never really enters into the conversation. It really, really doesn't. But we make it a point and it's it's just a it's not a rule it just happens to be that way that we don't we don't mix business with family probably the last thing you guys want to talk about well hell yeah exactly you know i made a rule a long time ago I made a rule a long time ago that succession is based upon blood spouses aren't blood that, that's hard the least to they know that. the least they know in my opinion about the business and its day-to-day Strengths, weaknesses, shortfalls, whatever, then I'm not inviting their opinion. I don't, first of all, don't want it. 
And second of all, you're not entitled to it. Now, that's, that's a strong that's position a strong to statement. be in. I was just going to say that. <laughs> okay. So in today's world, that may, may, might not be the most popular position to be in. But I happen to know, based upon our own experience, that when we kept it blood all the way down the line, then there's never any mixing of the two. And you just keep it that way. Right. And so the family unit stays successful, the business unit stays successful. But when you mix oil and water together... Interesting. Yes. So I have a question for each of you go. as we close here. First, you two. Sure. How would you how would you define success in your business? If you had to say you have 50 words or less, how would you define success in your business? Success is one of those ones that's difficult because obviously profitability and is a part. That's why we're here. So you have to be profitable. I think if you take that side out, though, uh, I, I think if we're successful developing construction professionals and if we're successful managing schedules and whatnot, we're going to build a relationship and, 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 and a demand for what we do that owners and general contractors are going to want us on their projects and keep that going. And I think I would feel successful if we're both profitable and that type of demand. And I'm, I'm meeting with, which I do now, fortunately, meeting with owners and general contractors about jobs coming up two, two and a half years from now. But they're already thinking that, you know, we need TSI on this job and here's how it can benefit us and help us get the budget and help us get the design right and those types of things. I think when I feel like, you know, we've got a backlog of that work, I've got work looking beyond it and we're profitable, I'll feel successful for about an hour and then... Uh, <laughs> Then I'll let myself go Leaving. back. I've, Vic and I have talked about this a lot of times, but but it, you know, in the past, I used to almost feel like every morning when it came to work in the distribution business specifically, that everybody took all my customers that night and I had to go back and earn them all back. But I think it was just my sort of natural mechanism to know that I need to stay sharp. You know, uh, Jack Nicholas as a golfer always talked about, he liked to be nervous because he felt like if he was nervous, he cared and that was what brought the the preparation and everything out of them. Trepidation. Yeah, I think I think I've, I I act with that a little bit or feel similar. So, so before I get to your question, do you have anything to add or to that? Well, on the business side, Pete's 100% correct. But I'm going to go back to what I said earlier, that our number one client is our own people. Hmm. That is your number one client. You, you take in terms of, of, of the... People, we've, we've now upwards of 150 to 175 people. To me, the most important part of that is, beside the business success, is us caring for those 175 people. That 175 people translates into another factor of multiplication. And so, if you count, quote, belly buttons, that's a healthcare term they use, how many belly buttons you're responsible for. I think we're responsible for about four or 500. And we should be concerned about that. We should be aware of that. And that's one of the reasons why you've been around for 42 years. Well, that's what you learn right? about it. And, you know, we, we're a very popular company for the union iron workers to work for because we care about them as people. We don't care where they came from. We don't care what their ethnicity is. They're human beings. And we work together for a common cause. And we mutually benefit that's from exactly. it. Exactly. And so if that ever changes, then this company will fail. So you have influence on many, which is Man fantastic. And lastly, if you if the right word would be legacy, what would you want yours to be? Wow, never thought of it in terms of leaving a footprint, but <clears throat> I think the 
if you consider it, it would be passing on the values that I cherished, the ethics that I cherished, and if, if all of it or most of it gets picked up by the family, the successors, the, the children in the, in the business, and they convey that to the other people who have that similarly, as being a part of this organization, then I think that would be an important part because then they're carrying on a tradition of the way we respect our people, respect ourselves, respect our clients, our vendors, and whatnot. If you take the word respect out of it, it becomes abuse. You can't have that. Well, that's a great so answer. So I want that to be the legacy. Uh, that's a great answer. So I'll direct this one to you first. What are your, would you consider your three coolest projects? Not necessarily the biggest, but ones that you remember the most. Well, out of the, I'm told that I've, don't keep track of this, but I'm told that we have a history of, we have about five to 600 projects that we've completed in, the, in those 40 plus years. And, uh, and so mine certainly would be the largest job that we ever did at the time was National Harbor. And that was with Perini Construction and Gensler Architects. And that was, that was the and we well. did, a, we, that was our largest job ever. We hit a, a $25 million value of contract at that point. And we made $5 million on that project. Was it easy? No. Was it supposed to be easy? No. But it was worth it. But it was well, <laughs> a lot of fun, a lot of spent, a lot of time spent, and that sort of thing. I think without question, the, uh, the city center complex downtown <clears throat> in that period of time uh, was our home run. That Doing was a forty-odd million dollar project with us, with a uh, with an extremely Heinz development out of out of, out of Texas. Uh, bonded a relationship with them that to this day <clears throat> is still giving dividends, and uh, and it's a personal relationship, and, it, and it's not one that's just mine. It's it's Pete's and it's others in the company, and that's the nice part of it. And so that's the second one. Then the ballparks. We've had a lot of fun with uh, National Stadium. And Pete was front and center with that project from day one to the day it completed. Clark job. And that yeah. was just a Clark job. And it, it was just a, a lot of fun. So a venue. So we've been through hospitals, universities, sports stadiums, rehab buildings, you know, new construction, residential multifamily. But I think those are the ones they, that mean the most to me. a pretty good project. Do you ever want to add to that? For me, uh, yeah. Let, me, let me ask you a different one. Yeah, sure. What's the toughest one? The one that sucked the most energy out of you? <laughs> oh boy! Uh, we got two right now with uh, Plaza Construction and JDG that are they're uh, really, really, really difficult projects. We're all three staying together as best we can and, and fighting the the process and doing what we can to get done. But those are probably the toughest in terms of, of what I can uh, think of. I think there's a lot of them that. Uh, that are tough. Mary Marquis was a tough job, a lot going on. That's a uh, big job, yep. But uh, but a tough one ultimately wasn't a great uh, financial project. We've had a couple, obviously, through the years, been doing it 40 years, we've always got a few that we didn't make much money on. But I, I think wounds were more self-inflicted. I think we knew what happened. Yeah, there may be a couple things that were tough and got against us or went against us. So I got to go positive here. What's the best one for you? So uh, Vic named a couple of them, obviously, City Center and the stadium. I ran uh, uh, the stadium as a, as a project manager at the time as I was kind of earning my stripes. Uh, that was probably the most fun. Also, a very tough project. I don't know if you remember, but the stadium got uh, derailed for nine months in the middle while they fought over whatever they yeah, were fighting over. Receivable. Finally, it came back, and opening day never moved. 
So it was actually at the time, I don't know if it still is, is the fastest stadium ever built. Uh, Ronnie Strump was the uh, senior superintendent from Clark. Uh, probably the best superintendent I've ever worked around. Yep, Nats uh, Stadium. Uh, probably the best superintendent. He, uh, he runs his jobs by an 8 a.m. meeting uh, every day. Every foreman on the project goes to his 8 a.m. meeting. And if you want to learn something about the job, I learned it as a project manager, attend the 8 a.m. meeting. You know what every trade is doing, where they are, what they've sworn to do, what they've told right, Ronnie they can they do. do. And they damn sure better have that answer you know, be done by the time they get there the following day and uh, whatnot. And Ronnie's a, a little old school, but it was a great one. Uh, the other one would be um, at the University of Maryland. We did the Brendan E. Reeves Center for Science and Innovation. A really neat looking building. But I think one of the coolest parts is I got to work with Whiting Turner in the beginning. Uh, I got to participate in the design, the budget. When we got our handshake on the job, there were eight schematic drawings on wow. the job. And we qualified what we saw and built from there. We started at about 19 to 20 million. Uh, that was over budget. We got it down to about 16 to four and moved forward with that. But it was a really neat project from the design side, the way it looks, it's right at the entrance of University of Maryland. So I'd say that was probably the, the other one other than the ones that Dick mentioned. So. I want to congratulate both of you, and I know this is not a written story. Mm -hmm. It's still part of the journey, but you guys have done a great job. Mm -hmm. uh, and I can speak from personal experience that I've enjoyed working with you. I appreciate your time here today and you sharing your story. It was, it was great. Oh, well, it's Thank a great you. opportunity. We'd like to be able to do it too. And if we can help anybody along the way, then that's, that's a part of what we exist for. And you've always been that way. Yeah, and never Thank change. You both. Elevate, 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 elevate. All the music for the episodes, including our theme song, Elevate, is provided by DMV producer Trey Skills. If you like what you heard, follow Trey Skills on Instagram at Trey Skills, T-R-E-Y-S-K-I-L-L-Z. That's T-R-E-Y-S-K-I-L-L-Z. So follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Elevate Industry. Check out my YouTube channel at Commercial Construction, Elevate the Industry. Visit my website, adicorp.com, A-D-I-C-O-R-P.com. Go to LinkedIn, search for David Proceda, hit connect and follow me. Please rate, review, and comment on this episode. And I look forward to seeing you next week.